This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Israel-Hamas war is about to move into its third week. Thousands of lives lost, hostages still being held, and a humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza, the likes of which is unfathomable. The world is watching, holding its collective breath, waiting to see what happens next. Stephen Shulman is the president and CEO of Jewish Federations of Canada, of which UJA Greater Toronto is a proud member. Today, Stephen joins us not only as the leader of Jewish Federations of Canada, but also as a caring human being, distraught as we all are over the bloodshed taking place in Israel and in Gaza. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today on the feed. Thank you for asking me to join you at. The Jewish Federations of Canada, what is your position on the war between Israel and Hamas as it enters its third week? Well, this is this is a war that was brought on by the most uh, barbaric attack, the kind of attack you would think wasn't even for the 20th century, was really for uh, the 12th century or 13th century. Um, and that attack, which was a terrorist, multiple terrorist attacks by thousands of terrorists, by land, sea, and air, in fact, uh, going into is pre-67 Israel. So this wasn't about settlements or anything else. This was about uh, attacking the people of Israel and causing as much death and destruction as possible. It was an orgy of violence. And we are there in solidarity with the people of Israel, and I think in solidarity with all people of goodwill who have any modicum of respect for human rights and human dignity. What about the people in Gaza right now who are either running for their lives or have no place to go? What about that side of it? That side of it is absolutely tragic. Uh, the, the, the power in Gaza, which is Hamas, a terrorist organization, which is recognized as such by the government of Canada and most Western governments. That that entity, Hamas, that organization, is guilty of war crimes against not just Israel, but in fact double war crimes against its own people by putting Gazans in harm's way, by attacking uh, Israelis, uh, Israeli, uh, um, not not military, but in fact, Israeli civilians uh, by shooting thousands of rockets into Israel every which way to try to do as much, uh, cause as much death and destruction as possible, and then to launch those rockets, uh, those projectiles from near hospitals and schools and apartment buildings and office buildings where people are working. Uh, and in fact, telling Gazans not to leave when Israel gives warnings to say we're going to be targeting this area and, and uh, in fact, threatening people who are leaving. This is an organization, a terrorist group that, in fact, uh, sees death and destruction, whether it be in Israel or amongst its own people, as uh, really the best things in terms of giving that organization more power. Stephen, what is your perspective when it comes to the finger pointing that's going on right now in terms of the bombing of a hospital in Gaza where there was hundreds of people who died and were injured and it's absolutely shocking what took place. Finger pointing going on. What is your perspective on this? It's 
absolutely tragic, number one. Again, going back to the last uh, question you asked, Anne, people are paying with their lives, civilians are paying with their lives because of Hamas's actions. But look, finger pointing, and, and you know, I don't know when we're going to get the answer on this, the, and there may be different answers because Hamas is always going to say, and Islamic Jihad is always going to say, that it was the Israelis that did it, even if it was Islamic Jihad and Hamas. But I can tell you the record uh, of Israel has been to say we're going to investigate th these kinds of things. And in war, in the fog of war, there are accidents. That said, the Israelis came out very quickly, and the Americans uh, the next day came out and said that, in fact, they agree with the Israeli evidence and that it was Islamic Jihad, in fact, that fired that rocket. But at the end of the day, news media reported otherwise uh, off the top and is treating Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Israel like they are somehow comparable parties in terms of credibility. We saw what Islamic Jihad and Hamas do they target civilians? And we saw what Hamas has done with civilians in Israel and with their own civilians trying to stop them from leaving and, in fact, using them as cover. We have seen President Joe Biden stand shoulder to shoulder with the Israeli prime minister. Let's talk about what you want to see from our prime minister here in Canada. Well, our prime minister, and in fact, I was at a, a gathering in Ottawa uh, early in the week. This was a conference that was planned long ago to fight anti-Semitism. What uh, the Canadian community, including the one here in Greater Toronto, has seen over many years, increases in anti-Semitism in all of its forms. And those uh, incidents and increases tend to crescendo at times of conflict like this. So, in fact, the prime minister was at that conference, as was the leader of the opposition, the leader of the NDP and Bloc Québécois. And uh, while they're, the way they messaged was different, they did message uh, solidarity with Israel. So the prime minister uh, certainly has done that. And uh, as with all, I think, people of goodwill and leaders of goodwill, they recognize a distinction between a terrorist organization that sees as victory civilians dying on both sides um, versus uh, a country that is a democracy that uh, has shared values with Canada and other Western countries and that does everything possible to minimize casualties. But still, any country in that position, could you imagine, Anne, if this was Canada, if Canada was attacked this way with thousands of rockets and not once, by the way, this is the fifth such major kind of conflict in the last uh, uh, 15 years or so. Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't tolerate our government not responding. There has been heightened security around places where members of the Jewish community gather right around the world and right here in our own backyard, here in the GTA. What is that a sign of to you, Stephen? It's a sign, it's a sad sign, to, to, because what we have is we have a situation where violence in the Middle East, and it could happen with violence elsewhere in the world, but violence in the Middle East spills over to this beautiful country, probably the best country to live in in the world, Canada. Uh, and we've seen this before. The last uh, 
the last conflict between Hamas and Israel, we saw supporters of Hamas, in fact, Canadians, going into Jewish neighborhoods to try to, uh, to, try to provoke, to try to intimidate. And now we had, in fact, a direct call from Hamas. I mean, talk about, you want to talk about pointing fingers. Hamas is an organization which called upon people all over the world to initiate a day of rage, days of rage, and in fact, attack Jews wherever they are, not just in Israel. So, and then we ended up having a threat at a local high school. Thankfully, it was contained. The police acted. But you can imagine what concern this has brought in the Jewish community. There's already uh, been greater and greater concerns here about security. So we have to do everything we can in this society to say, hands off our democracy. You, everybody, has to conduct themselves with the civility expected of all Canadians, regardless of who you support. You speak so eloquently as the president and CEO of Jewish Federations of Canada. Let's talk to you as a human being right now, humankind. And I I question that word sometimes with the word kind in it, you know, as I'm looking at what's going on in the Middle East right now. Can you tell me how this is affecting you as a person watching what's unfolding in Israel and in Gaza? Yeah, I thought the the days of the days of Jews being attacked en masse, uh, and not just with rockets, we've seen that. And, and those are attempts, whether it be from Hezbollah or from in the north or Hamas, from Gaza or Islamic Jihad, those are, those are attacks, those are attempts to kill Jews, plain and simple. They're outright anti-Semitic uh, organization that promote hatred of Jews around the world. But then to have the images that we saw babies with their heads cut off because they're Jewish, of, of Holocaust survivors being kidnapped and spat upon. And, and, and that, that kind of behavior, if I can call it that, being celebrated, and I can go on and on, uh, that is distressing in a way that uh, I never thought I would feel distress as a Jew living in 2023. And uh, my wife's family were refugees in Europe, got ahead of the Nazis, kept moving east, and thank God survived, and were came to Canada as refugees. And they, all those people who came thought a definitely better life, and it is a better life. It's a better life here, and it's a better life in Israel, which I can comment on in a moment, but the fact that we're going through this as a Jewish people, and really, you talk about humanity as, as human beings, it, it just is terrible. And one other thing, and I would say that almost all members of the Jewish community here, and we have an office in Israel, and, and all of my colleagues in Israel aren't, either are directly affected, have members of their family who were murdered or severely injured in these attacks, um, or we know people directly here um, family members. I spoke to somebody at our conference uh, earlier in the week in Ottawa who, in fact, had six family members killed, murdered, butchered on one of these uh, kibbutzim uh, close to the Gaza border. And this is a common type of discussion. So it's very personal. Stephen Schulman, President and CEO of Jewish Federations of Canada, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Anne. 
Mohamed Faki is a Lebanese-Canadian businessman and a philanthropist, a man who conducts life-changing charity work and community service through his Faki Foundation. Mohammed is no stranger to war, conflict, and turmoil in various parts of the world. He's been very active on social media lately, especially since the deadly blast at a Gaza hospital earlier this week that killed nearly 500 people and sparked international condemnation. He joins us now on the feed. Mohammed, thank you. And your reaction to the blast that killed so many people at the Gaza hospital. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. And yes, of course, I mean, uh, we've been all stressed, all of us, people from all backgrounds, from every country, regardless if you're Muslim, Jewish, or Christian, we're not used to see civilians killed. We're not used to witness things like this happening, and we can't see anything. And we can't actually make a difference. If, uh, as a humanitarian, I see a child as a child, regardless if a Ukrainian child a white child, a black child, a Muslim child, a Jewish child, an Israeli child, for me, is a child. And I'm not ready at all. And there's nothing in the world that I have that would make me worry to lose anything. But to be in any way not against and condemning anyone who kills a child or cause to kill a child or support a killing of a child, regardless where that child is. And when I saw those images on social media, I couldn't hold myself. I saw my tear coming out of my eyes, and I'm saying, what happened to the world? What happened to all these people that they're ready to donate, that they were standing out there to help others, but we are at the same time, in the same hand, seeing people killed, children killed in hospitals, and we can't make a difference. I truly believe we can. Canada can. Canada could take a different stand. I think our politicians could have done much better. Our politicians could have taken this as an opportunity to show how peaceful our country is. What we're known for is the human right, defending a human right, not taking one side or the other. We can't take any side but there's children being killed. We're against it. I'm against the killing of any child in the world. And that's what I was asking in my video. I asked what was the threshold for the Canadian politician to speak up against killing the Palestinian civilian the same way they spoke up against killing the Israeli uh, civilian. So I am against killing any civilian, the Israeli civilian, but I am as well against the politician feeling and making others feel that an, a Palestinian civilian or a Palestinian child is not as precious as an Israeli child or a Ukrainian child or any other child. There's been a lot of finger pointing about this blast at a hospital in Gaza that killed so many people, so many innocent people. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stepped forward a couple of days ago and and said very clearly that he condemns what happened and that that this war is not following the rules. I mean, there are, it's hard to believe that there are rules when it comes to war, and particularly when you're dealing with terrorists. What should the Canadian government do now? What should the UN do now? I mean, we all should advocate for peace. Like what happened in Canada? Aren't we the same community that held each other's hands when, when the Quebec City mosque attack happened? Do you know who are the second person who donated to the Quebec City mosque after I made my donation? It was an amazing Jewish family, an Israeli family, donated to the mosque. When the synagogue and the graffiti happened at the synagogue, I offered that I will donate. Like... This is us, Canada. 
where people, Muslim and Jewish, stand shoulder to shoulder to support one another. We should not be taking any position except that. The, the prime minister could and should start a peace initiative. And honestly, I blame the politicians of the world. In 2014, when it happened and we saw people killed, innocent people killed in the Middle East, when it ended, everybody said, thank God it ended, we don't have to talk about it anymore. That's not what leadership all of us could take a leadership role. Where we plan for a peace solution, peaceful solution, where everyone will be living with dignity and on both sides, and everyone will be living in peace. And, you know, leadership is not about hiding something under the rug and leave it. This is impacting Canada. This is impacting our street. The Jewish employee of every company aren't feeling safe. The Muslim employee of every company aren't feeling safe. Uh, the students in every school aren't feeling safe. So it is our problem. We can't say it's no longer our problem. But it's our problem and for us to deal with it. And the way the Canadian way of dealing with things is try to advocate for peace and bring peaceful solution within the human rights that we all known for as Canadian around the world. I've known you, Mohammed, for years, and I respect you enormously, and I, I will always feel that way about you. I've always wanted to ask you this question. When you look at a person, do you see color? Do you see age? Do you see religion? Do you see anything? What do you see when you look at a person? I see beautiful people. I see a father and a mother. I see a daughter of someone. I see someone that I can't find, I can't wait to find a way to love them. And I love you. And you know what? To all my friends, Yehuda Levinson is a Jewish lawyer that signs my family trust. Yehuda, I love you. And to everyone out there, to my Jewish friend and Muslim friend, I love you equally. I don't see colors. I don't see people because of their color. I see people because of their behavior. And you know what? I'm a little bit different. To me, it's the legacy you leave. To me, how many people and how many life you change. And to me, it doesn't matter if you are a black, you're Jewish, you're Muslim. I love you equally. I love you for the sake of how much you help others, and especially the people that they are in need. For me, I don't look at people how much money they have, where they come from. I don't look at them how they pray to God. I look at them in one way, how many lives they can touch, how many people can they help. And if you don't have the money to help, you can help people with a smile. So the idea that, yeah, maybe you're talking about people who have the money. It's not about the money. It's about the smiling to people. I called my Jewish friend yesterday. I told them and I explained to them what my video meant. Because not because I'm seeking a, an explanation because I need one. No, because I want them to know that I love them. And all what I'm asking our politician to say is to be equal, to be fair, and to be balanced. And you know me. I would never, ever support anything that it's not what we are proud to be as a Canadian and what, what, what is not a humanitarian. I'm a humanitarian person. I mean, it's not, I'm not, I'm, I don't define by only Muslim. I'm a Canadian Muslim. But mostly when I walk around, and you know that, I don't care about people calling me successful. I care about people calling me kind. And that's what I want. And to everyone listening to me, Canada has a very big role to play. And that role is the role that I'm asking everyone to do. We need to all to pray and advocate for peace and talk about it and break bread together. Let's go break bread together. And if anybody wants to protest, let's Muslim, Jewish, and Christian, Christian protest to push our leader, to push the world leader.
to find a peaceful solution for this. Mohammed Faki, you are loved by so many because of all of the wonderful things you do. And I thank you for joining us on the feed now. Thank you very much. The Organization for Social Media Safety is focused on protecting children from the horrific images of war online. Shaliza Back is now with that story. We've been seeing and hearing about the awful things happening as the war between Hamas and Israel rages on. A lot of our information on this side of the world comes from social media, which is not always a safe space. Joining me to discuss this is Mark Berkman, CEO of the Organization for Social Media Safety. How are you, Mark? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, first of all, let's start with the positives because there are a lot of dangers on social media, but some good can come of it as well. How helpful has it been in this case? That's an excellent question. There certainly are positives to social media. We do not deny that people are able to raise funds for philanthropic efforts, um, certainly related to the current events and getting medical help and supplies to people that need it. People have an outlet to express what they're thinking. The problem, of course, is we always like to measure those at the Organization for Social Media Safety. We like to measure those benefits with the safety aspects of what we see going on with social media. And we're very concerned these days with what we are seeing. Yeah, and that brings me to my next point. So the other side of things, what is happening online when it comes to Hamas? We are seeing videos distributed through social media by terrorist organizations, including Hamas. These videos have disinformation in them. They have graphic violence propaganda. And so this content that's being spread to literally millions is a very real global concern right now. And how is it possible that those types of videos gain this many views and reaches so many people? Because the material is salient and social media is made to spread salient material quickly. People see it, they are drawn to the violence, to the horror of it, and it gets liked and shared and it spreads like wildfire. That's why we have the term viral. It branches off and spreads like a virus uh, impacting so many. And speaking of the impact, who do you feel are most affected by these types of posts and videos? There's a lot of people being affected from the macro level. We see public policy impacted by uh, use of social media and disinformation and propaganda within the home level and the micro level. We are seeing children impacted. Children are seeing very horrific, violent content right now. The research is fairly clear that exposure to this material can have a range of emotional and mental health impacts, including post-traumatic stress disorder. So we're really, society is being impacted right now by the lack of guardrails and safety measures undertaken by the social media platforms to prevent some of the spread of dangerous content here. So with that being said, what can parents and other people do to ensure safety? First, we're calling on the social media platforms to do a significantly better job here. They need to surge their resources in their trust and safety departments. Unfortunately, over the last few years, we have seen trust and safety staff gutted in various social media platforms. They don't have enough staff. They don't have enough resources right now. They need to do a better job. They need to remove material 
distributed by terrorist organizations immediately upon appearance on the platform. They are not doing that. We're calling on Congress to improve public policy. We need to amend, revise what is called Section 230 in the United States that basically allows for complete immunity to any civil action when platforms are used to assist and spread terrorist messages they need to be held liable we're also calling on congress to very quickly pass sammy's law i know i'm speaking about the us now but this would impact uh, social media users globally sammy's law would require social media platforms to finally give parents the choice to use what we call third-party safety software that software parents can use to monitor children's social media use and provide parents with alerts when dangerous content comes across a child's account. That includes severe violence, that includes terrorist distributed materials so that parents can intervene and provide resources to their children at the exact right time. That is essential. And so on that note, we also recommend that parents strongly consider third-party safety software. We recommend and endorse software currently called BARK, B-A-R-K, that can provide those alerts that I just talked about. For parents of younger teens and even tweens, we really recommend consider that parents consider pausing social media for the time being. We are seeing this content pop up through a range of platforms, including YouTube and others that young teens and tweens are using currently, that content is dangerous for children. So we want parents to really actively consider whether it's time to pause. And how do those third-party apps work? So third-party apps, part of the reason we're doing the legislation is that the third-party apps require that at the request of the parent, that the social media platform send data over to the third-party safety software company. So if you think about financial software that we use, like Mint, types of software that, that millions are using, it works the same way. Basically, you request what's called an API, that data transfer between your bank and Mint, uh, and then the data flows. So same thing when it comes to third-party safety software. A parent makes a request to use a program software like Bark, so social media company allows the data to flow. Bark then monitors the child's social media use and sends alerts to the parent for dangerous content, like I said, like terrorism, extreme violence, also cyberbullying, suicidal ideation, sexual predation, a whole range of dangers that we've seen third-party safety software literally save children's lives because of these alerts. So it's a really critical safety intervention. Wow, a lot to process. And I know this is a very difficult time for many people. And if you could give parents maybe your top two tips on how to stay vigilant and how to help their child through this, if they've already seen things like this, how to maybe explain to them that it's maybe not real, explain to them the dangers of social media. First of all, we have a full list of conversations that, that parents should talk about with their children if they allow their children onto social media. And it's certainly if their friends are on social media, they're going to have access to this content likely as well. So that's available for free on our website, socialmediasafety.org. Have those conversations. First of all, they are really essential. Make sure that your safety settings on your child's devices and apps are set to the appropriate level for your child. So if you have a young teen, a tween or younger, make sure that they cannot download social media apps without your permission. 
and then go and review those social media apps. So like I said, there's a range of apps now that are showing content that we believe is far too dangerous for children to be seeing. Make that decision whether you're actually going to allow your child onto those platforms. Great advice. Great advice. Mark Berkman, CEO of the Organization for Social Media Safety. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. To donate or volunteer locally, please head to the UJA Federation of Greater Toronto's website, jewishtoronto.com. The feed will be right back. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Loneliness, it is a big problem here in Canada and often goes unnoticed. But help is on the horizon and it starts here in our own backyard. CMHA, York Simcoe, is creating the first ever evidence-based framework and action plan to eradicate loneliness around the world and right here at home. Rebecca Shields is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, York Region and South Simcoe. She is our guest now on the feed. Rebecca, welcome to the show. I'm really glad that you're joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So what exactly is happening here in Canada in terms of loneliness? Well, you know, we all experience episodic loneliness. That's normal. Whether we have transitions, we move, we lose somebody. But I think what we're really talking about, what happens when somebody goes from that episodic loneliness into that chronic loneliness and, you know, and then they really feel isolated and that's when it starts to really impact their health, their well-being, and all the risk factors come up. I don't know if you know this, Anne, but, you know, chronic loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's a real concern for us at the Canadian Mental Health Association and all of our partners to help people manage and, and deal with chronic loneliness and basically deal with loneliness in our society. How does loneliness manifest itself and how does it happen to a person well that's a really great question because as you know from the pandemic a lot of us experience a little bit of that episodic loneliness which is totally normal and it's an really an individual experience about not just the quantity of connections that you have but that quality of connections that you have so Somebody might have lots and lots of connections, whether online, but they can still feel really lonely. And then there's other people who may only have one or two good people in their life, but that quality is there and they feel really connected and that sense of belonging and purpose that we associate um, with that wellness. And so how does it happen? As I said, you know, some of the risk factors can be things like moving and transition, grief and loss, loss of a, a relationship, a spouse, um, it can be about people who are refugees and new to our communities who've had to move away from the world that they knew, even if it's a positive move where they've come for a new job, they can still lose things. And an area where we see it a lot, of course, and we talk about it a lot is, you know, our youth that go to university and then they feel really alone in colleges and that transition in their life where they lose their circle friends. So those are places where people can, you know, end up feeling really lonely for a long period of time. 
And can loneliness also be a sign of something greater like depression? Can depression lead to loneliness? Well, I think they're interrelated, and that's what the research says. So, you know, people experience chronic loneliness have higher rates of anxiety and depression. But the way we need to think about loneliness and belonging is that humans are hardwired for belonging. We need it in our very DNA to survive. That's how we've grown up. So just like we need water and food, if you don't have water, you begin to dehydrate and your body um, uh, has impacts. And same things if you don't eat, right? It starts to deteriorate. Well, actually, chronic loneliness, the same thing happens. So not only do we see it in anxiety and depression, we see it in terms of a whole bunch of physical impacts as well that include, you know, higher risk for chronic illnesses. We see, you know, all kinds of breakdowns of the body from from basically the stress of chronic loneliness. And, in fact, there's some great research that came out of Alberta where they looked at the number one reason a senior would end up in hospital and stay there was because of chronic loneliness. Hmm. So, because it can exacerbate existing conditions. So, it's so much bigger than just uh, anxiety and depression, but it can lead, it can certainly be a factor to that. And in fact, it's a real risk factor for suicide. So, we, you know, we pay a lot of attention to this. They want to support people for their own health and well-being. So it's not just a feeling, it, it can actually do damage to your physical health as well. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. The U.S. Surgeon General declaring that loneliness is a new public health epi- epidemic in the United States. Are we moving toward that here in Canada? Is this something that's becoming a crisis? I think it's really important. I've been watching this and I got really interested in way back before the pandemic. I think the pandemic highlighted it. But, you know, the rates in Canada range from community to community we, where people report chronic loneliness anywhere from 10% all the way up to about 40% of people can feel lonely at any given time. And in Ontario, we found uh, through CMHA uh, research that over a quarter of Canadians are experiencing loneliness regularly and almost 10%, especially the ages of 50 plus, feel that they're often lonely. So. These are huge numbers when we talk about what we talked about before, the impacts on our overall physical and mental and emotional well-being. And when those things are in play, you know, it certainly certainly puts at risk our relationships. It puts at risk our health care and our health care costs and employment. So there's really, you know, there's both individual, family and societal impacts to that. Rebecca, would you talk to us about CMHA York Region and South Simcoe's first ever evidence-based framework and action plan to eradicate loneliness on a global scale, but also right here at home? We're really excited. There are components to this overall action plan, and it starts off with a community framework for belonging. And that is a framework in which individual communities, whether it's the York Region Seniors Community, maybe it's a local municipality, or, you know, it can be an entire province, can look at a series of factors, which I spoke about before, um, access to uh, places where they can connect, um, culture and all the different factors, and then create their own action plans to address those things with uh, KPIs or performance indicators to see if they're actually moving the needle and addressing chronic loneliness and increasing feelings of belonging. So that's the framework that people use. So the action plan then is one, mobilizing communities to use that and supporting them to do that through knowledge, education, 
I'm using grants and partnering with, you know, a variety of funders. The second thing is um, enabling that sharing of information and, and, and seeing how it happens. So there's a lot of knowledge exchange. And then amplifying it over time to, you know, address what's happening in other countries, such as what's happening in the UK or Japan, and bringing those ideas and sharing best practices so that we can all address chronic loneliness over time. Rebecca Shields, I have to thank you so much for your hard work and for your caring, and I appreciate that you've joined us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. And if anyone listening right now needs help, please go to their website, cmha-yr.on.ca, or call 1-866-345-0183. After the break, the crackdown on carjackings. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. With over 300 carjackings in the GTA alone this year, police are joining forces to tackle the problem. Glenn Perkins with the OPP. During recent months, we have seen an increase in the number of carjackings in York Region and across the GTA. In an attempt to combat this rising crime, the OPP is partnering with police forces to form the Provincial Carjacking Joint Task Force. To tell us more, we're joined by Detective Inspector Scott Wade. Welcome to the feed. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Detective Inspector, why was it important to create the Joint Task Force? Well, obviously... Auto thefts are a serious issue across Ontario and uh, the entire of Canada. And it's one thing to have your vehicle stolen out of your driveway, but now what we're seeing is that the criminals are using force, direct intimidation, and weapons to gain access to vehicles. So this has changed the dynamics of auto theft dramatically. So with the rise in violent auto theft, the police in the GTA have determined that the best way to combat that is with a collaborative, intelligence-led enforcement approach. How will this work with the municipal police forces, such as York Regional Police? What's the process? Well, the uh, agencies involved include Halton Regional Police, Peel, York, Durham, Toronto Police, and the OPP. But what this creation of the task force allows us to do is the instant sharing of information and intelligence from the evidentiary-driven investigations and working together to disrupt the criminal networks that are responsible for carjackings. So we're going to be able to share information instantly. It won't require setting up a meeting or, you know, talking to multiple different agencies. We're all on the task force together. And we know the criminals don't respect borders or the difference between municipal policing borders. So we had to create this collaborative team. Before we talk about the violence side, let's talk about the vehicles. Are there particular makes and models that are being targeted? Honestly, I can say it covers the spectrum of vehicles that are out there. So what we're seeing is sometimes the luxury higher-end vehicles are being carjacked or stolen specifically for profit-motivated. They're revend, they're shipped overseas. When you see some of the other vehicles being carjacked or stolen, sometimes they're to facilitate further crime. So they may just steal a random car. It's not targeted in any way. They just need this vehicle to facilitate further crimes, further robberies, or acts of violence. And obviously those are very concerning to us. On Monday, the day of the announcement of the Provincial Carjacking Joint Task Force, three people were arrested, including a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old, both from Markham, in connection with two violent carjackings in Durham region. 
And on Wednesday, Bill police arrested three 17-year-old males and a 16-year-old male for a home invasion and violent carjacking in Brampton. What's shocking to me is the age of the accused and the level of violence used. Yeah, and that's shocking to us as well. And again, another one of the driving factors for creating this task force. Um, Number one, the age of the accused is concerning, and we don't know whether it's a trend with organized crime to utilize young offenders um, because of their vulnerability and potentially, you know, the difference in court consequences. Uh, We can't say that with any clear confirmation that that's the case, but it's something that we're looking into. So obviously it's a very concern, the age of our accused, and also the levels of violence and the firearms that we're intercepting and, and seizing. That was going to be my next question. The reason for teenagers getting involved, can it be lucrative for them? Well, obviously, there's, there's a profit-motivated um, reason for these crimes. They're not crimes of addiction or crimes of um, passion. They're crimes that are financially motivated. So we're hoping, you know, with a, an enforcement approach, as well as removing the profitability, um, using asset forfeiture, you know, and all of the tools in our trade to combat this and remove the profitability behind it. The penalties for these kind of crimes can be harsh, but are you finding that you're arresting repeat offenders? Yes, and that's a concern for us. Obviously, we want to um, utilize the court systems, and we're working very closely with our partners at MAG and partners in court and um, social services as well in a multifaceted approach. But, you know, we do see that there's repeat offenders, and that's concerning for us, but we'll address it with the courts. We'll address it with the proper bail hearing uh, restrictions and utilize all the tools that we can and, and the partnerships especially. Detective Inspector Wade, being carjacked will be traumatic for anyone, but with the added violence, it takes it to another level. No, definitely. Kind of like I alluded to earlier, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible if your vehicle's stolen from a parking lot or if it's stolen from your driveway or, you know, an arena. But when you're confronted with violence, a weapon, or even the threat of that, it can be much more traumatizing. And then it has lasting effects on these victims and lasting effects to the public. So that's, again, why this task force is focusing on the violence associated with auto theft. Um, We have other processes in place, other teams, other investigative uh, units that are following up very strongly on what we consider a standard auto theft, not a violent auto theft. But this task force is really concerned with the violence associated with carjacking and home invasions. What can our listeners do to prevent being a victim of a carjacking? I don't want them to be overly concerned, but I do want people to be aware that it is an issue. So some of the things they can do, and the biggest thing is just practicing good situational awareness. Uh, Being aware of your surroundings, aware of where you are, what's going on around you. If you see something that you're concerned with, uh, somebody approaching your vehicle, you can activate the panic alarm. You can honk your horn. You can try and create attention, and that's what these thieves don't want. If you think you're being followed, go to a parking lot of a police station, parking lot of a fire hall or a hospital where there's lots of people around 24-7, you know, there's lights, there's cameras. You just want to make it as hard as possible. If all this happens and you're unable to avoid, you know, a robbery or a carjacking, you need to acquiesce with the demands, give up your vehicle. It's only a vehicle. You know, it's not worth a life. It's not worth violence. Um, Stay calm and, you know, obey the commands and then call 911 as soon as you're safe and let the vehicle go. It's definitely not worth you being hurt. Detective Inspector Scott Wade with the Provincial Carjacking Joint Task Force. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you, sir.
Small and medium-sized businesses have prepared for a recession, but now the focus is on cybersecurity, emerging technologies, and climate realities. Jim Lang with that story. Our friends at KPMG Private Enterprises have done a fascinating business survey and look, small and medium-sized businesses are the foundation of this country and who better to talk about it than Dino Infante from KPMG. Dino, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, Interesting information in this poll. Uh, 86% of small business leaders say their company's in a better position today because of the steps they took in anticipation of a recession. And I think as a Canadian, that's wonderful to hear. They're in that good of shape and they've repaired themselves that well, Dino. Yeah, it's it, it, it's great. I mean, certainly despite some softening in the economy, you know, uh, the small and medium-sized businesses are actually quite highly optimistic over their growth prospects over the next three years. And and what's interesting, even even higher than uh, Canadian CEOs of large uh, corporations, which was around eighty uh, percent. Uh, something that I, I, I hear a lot about and I know a lot about, I'm just going to jump in and out because there's so many fascinating tidbits in this uh, survey from KPMG. 63% of businesses reporting their business has been a target of cyber attack. And I think that's a number that actually surprised me. It really jumped out at me when I saw that. Quite significant. It's interesting. Uh, no, no doubt that certainly inflation interest rates are still a factor in terms of uh, uh, concerns about their growth prospects. But one of the emerging concerns was exactly that, cybersecurity. And many of the, uh, the uh, small and medium-sized businesses are feeling more vulnerable to uh, rising cyber threats. And as you said, it's over 60%. And, you know, um, they've really recognized that they need they small and medium-sized businesses need to prioritize and invest in cybersecurity to really close that gap and build that capacity. Speaking with Dino Fonte from KPMG and AI, artificial intelligence, is basically the buzzword of the world right now, whether it's entertainment or media or business. How does how does AI help a business in Canada in 2023? Yeah, AI is uh, is certainly the big story, and in fact, generative AI is game-changing technology, and and is now the focus for small and medium-sized businesses hmm. to really transform their potential to improve their productivity and competitiveness. Um, in in our survey, you know, more than three quarters of the uh, uh, of the respondents said that the benefits of generative AI will outweigh the risks. And really, their challenge is is to find the talent, the highly skilled talent that is, to really operationalize and tech technology and investments to adapt accordingly. Why is it that with so many Canadians now, we're over forty million people. I can't remember the last time I spoke to anyone any walk of life with any business in this country who said they're having a hard time filling all their open positions. Why, Dino? There, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Like the, the challenge is, um, in the context of the right types of uh, opportunities in business, in, in the business opportunities that exist Hmm. in particular, as, as I said, as it relates to say highly skilled technologists, data scientists, things as such, uh, to really match up and uh, in terms of, in particular, as it relates to technology and disruptive technology to operational, operationalize and grow their business, uh, that, that still is a bit of a challenge, unfortunately. Well, this is, I find this fascinating as well. 67% of businesses in Canada plan to use the new federal green tax credits for clean electricity, clean hydrogen, clean technology, carbon capture, 
I, I mean, as a country, we're kind of being dragged, kicking and screaming into the new era with green technology. But businesses seem to be really embracing the new wave. They are. And, um, you know, look, climate change, you know, hit close to home for many of the small and medium-sized businesses. We came off a, a summer of wildfires and extreme weather events, and, and, and those really impacted their operations, their people, supply chains, you name it. And over, what, half of them had indicated their costs rose significantly. All of that to say that, um, you know, uh, over, what, 80% are more determined than ever to find ways to reduce their environmental impact. Now, here's the challenge, right, is... You know, 12 months ago, um, they really reined in in, in the small and medium-sized businesses to look at their businesses and and really um, recession-proof, if you will, because they were anticipating a recession. And one of the actions that many of them had took is to reduce uh, large expenditures. Now, if you match that up with climate change and and the ability to decarbonize that costs money and there's investments required and the good news is as you said is that uh, a good majority of them are determined to find ways to reduce environmental impact and the way they're going to do it is uh, they're going to access many of those uh, green tax credits which are available to them uh, which is fantastic speaking with dino fonte in the feed kpmg partner national leader private enterprise tax um this kpmg survey highlights a, a lot of interesting stories and and I, I always think about the tax credits that people get. What do they do with tax credits? And you say in the findings, 61% say these tax credits are influencing and determining their future business plans in, in such that they get these tax credits and this is going to determine different things they do, different people they hire, different pieces of equipment they buy. It, it, it will, right? Because, again, um, they are determined, 80% of the small and medium-sized businesses, to uh, find ways to reduce their impact, to decarbonize, etc. And that costs, it costs money, it's significant investment. So the good news is the Canadian government has, has uh, announced uh, um, generous tax credits that are available to them uh, that are going to help these small and medium-sized businesses ultimately to invest in uh, decarbonization and reduce the carbon footprint. As you so uh, eloquently pointed out, that not every company in this country is thriving, and you see every business is in a different financial situation. And that, that I think, really rings true as we you know get towards the end of 2023, looking ahead to next year, Dino, was with interest rates, with inflation and everything. I mean, it's a, it, it's a month-by-month, year-by-year challenge for these small, medium-sized businesses, isn't it? Yeah, and like, like you know, a majority of them are highly optimistic, as we set out, and uh, over their, you know, regarding their growth prospects for the next three years. Um, now, let's exactly as you described. There's ten percent or so that are not thriving, that are challenged, that are feeling less optimistic. You know, they struggled after the pandemic and really weren't able to adjust their businesses. You know, they have the looming repayment of the. Uh, the SIBA loans, for example. So uh, c- certainly there's a, there, there's a segment out there that uh, are, are finding it uh, challenging still. But, but I think what really comes back is these big numbers and quite a significant part of numbers in the survey for these small, medium-sized businesses who have prepared, who have done their homework, who listen to experts like you at KPMG and are going to weather this storm and be better for it down the road at the end of it. 
They certainly will. And, and, and again, right, is their focus and relentless focus on their business and, you know, uh, making decisions to, you know, cut, cut expenses where they need to, um, you know, put a pause on some large expenditures, improve operations, take, you know, a laser focus on cash flow, et cetera. Those, those are all important factors in order to, uh, to uh, put them in a position where they believe they would achieve their growth ambition over the next three years. And, you know, it's interesting as we have this conversation, you know, we're talking about AI and uh, the environment and carbon capture and all that information that's going on and trying to be better with your company and watching out for cybersecurity. Once upon a time, I remember when people went from, you know, paper receipts to digital receipts from, you know, like a handwriting a receipt to typing it out. And that was a change there. But eventually everyone mm-hmm. changed over and they evolved and thrived. And I can kind of see the same thing happening with small, medium sized businesses in this country at the same time with this situation. For sure. I mean, you know, like, look, the, the, the technology is moving quickly, in particular as it relates to AI. Um, you know, it, it in some cases could be viewed as disruptive, um, but but the, the reality may be is that it, it's going to bring incredible opportunities to innovate, and uh, small and medium-sized businesses uh, should embrace that. Uh, opportunity to be able to transform their businesses to be more productive uh, and, and, and have thriving small and medium-sized businesses in Canada that can be competitive to our counterparts in other countries. Do you know, I always um, really enjoy these surveys and I really enjoy your insights to businesses in this country, especially small, medium-sized businesses. I really thank you for taking the time and explaining this to the listeners. It's really appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.